Welcome to the Execution Zone podcast, where we tackle the challenge of why executing strategy is so much harder than actually creating it. We talk openly and honestly with entrepreneurs and leaders who will share the behind the scenes story of their own journey. This will give you the insights that you need to shortcut your own path to success. Welcome to the Execution Zone podcast. I'm Abby White. This week, we have got the absolutely incredible Renee Kylie with us. And I am so excited to share this episode with you. I truly believe it's what we all need to hear right now. And I left this podcast um, discussion feeling absolutely pumped, motivated and inspired. And I all think we need a little bit of that in our life right now. So Renee is an entrepreneur who started her journey at 24 and has had huge success alongside her business partner. After that enormous success, she then reached a turning point. She had reached 104 kilos in weight. She was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, having a Red Bull for breakfast, and although having a really successful career, had just become unhappy and unhealthy in her lifestyle, using her words. And Renee, by pure chance, happened to be watching um, a triathlon that was taking place in Noosa and became inspired to completely turn around her life. Renee now has gone on in under three years to become a professional athlete and her story is just incredible. In this episode, we talk about her business journey, some of her keys to growth, also how Renee navigated the global financial crisis and there's some great lessons from that how Renee um, got disciplined and executed upon her goal to become, well, firstly, get healthy, and then secondly, become a professional athlete. Um, We learn about Renee's mindset, and I think those lessons are so important for us right now. We learn about how to be extraordinary. And not only that, we also talk to Renee about how she plays a high-performance game and how she's managing and navigating the coronavirus situation. I genuinely think this is one of my favorite discussions that I've had so far and just took away so much from it. This episode is also about um, executing hard and some imperfect action. Uh, My frustrating piece of this story is that I unfortunately had another meeting to go to after my podcast episode with Renee, where I've got limited working hours at the moment, where my hubby and I are managing um, bubs and sort of really tag teaming the childcare and the work situation we all find ourselves in at the moment. Um, I had really limited time. So I will be honest and share that this episode feels a little bit frustrating in parts because I didn't get round to asking all the questions that I wanted to ask or to dig into. So it definitely feels like a little bit of unfinished business for me. Um, And I could definitely feel that, you know, some of it I was having to rush through and skip parts of the journey that I really wanted to dig into. So please bear with me for that. And if we all ask really, really, really nicely, I'm hoping that Renee will come back for part two of this conversation and to finish um, this conversation in some more depth with us. So enjoy this episode, grab your pad and pen. There is so many learnings here and enjoy. Welcome to this week's episode. This week we have got the amazing Renee Kylie with us. Renee has been introduced to me by my brother and I've been stalking her away and I'm so excited to share Renee's story with you um, and really, really pick Renee's brain and get some great insights from her. I'm going to share a little bit of Renee's bio and background to sort of bring everyone up to speed and then we'll jump into Renee's journey with her. Renee was a typical Aussie sporty kid who grew up in a small town, New South Wales, played basketball at state level and national level until she was 17, 
then went on to leave home in 2000 and moved to the city to go to university. After all of that, she promptly stopped all forms of sport and exercise in favor of study, work, and the party lifestyle. I'm impressed by the party lifestyle. I'm not sure I should say that, but I am. Um, In 2006, Renee and her business partner started their first business and it absolutely consumed her for the next phase of her life. Somewhere between 2000 when she left home and 2013, she managed to gain a significant amount of weight, reaching 104 kilos at her heaviest. She became a pack a day smoker and didn't exercise over that 13 year period. Despite being very successful in her corporate life, Renee was extremely overweight, unhealthy, and unhappy. By complete and utter chance, Renee watched a triathlon race for the first time, and it sparked what would become an incredible transformation. In January 2014, she rode a bike for the first time since primary school and swam laps of her pool for the first time since high school. She ran more kilometers in 2014 than she'd run in the prior 14 years of her life. Throughout the course of 2014, she lost 43 kilos. That's incredible. Almost half her body weight. Renee is now a full-time professional triathlete. Not only did she transform her health and physical appearance, but also completely changed the course of her life and career. Welcome, Renee. That is an epic, epic bio. Thanks so much, Abby. I really appreciate you having me on. And, you know, sometimes... um it's nice to reflect. It's nice to just sit there for a minute and I just took all that in and yeah, it it is a pretty big turnaround. Do you pinch yourself when you hear that and go, oh, she's talking about me? (laughs) Yeah, I actually do sometimes because it feels like I don't think about the transformation side of things a lot anymore because, you know, when life's in the way and you're busy focusing on goals and things like that. So you do tend to forget about the journey a little bit. So, yeah, sometimes um, I do kind of go, wow, that's actually crazy. (laughs) And this is why I quite like reading people's bios because I feel like some, even though it's cringeworthy, you have to sit and listen to it for some people. I actually quite like it because I feel sometimes you ask people their journey and they don't quite... Um, you know, no one wants to big themselves up, so they don't quite do it justice. Um, so look, I want to kickstart, if I can, around your business and building your business, because you started your first business at 24, which is super young, and it's gone on to be hugely successful. So I'd love to sort of start with understanding a bit more around what inspired you to start the business, that point in your life, and how you got that going and, and a bit more there. Can you share a bit about your business story with us? Yeah, sure. I um, I think I've been a pretty driven person, even as a kid. Um, I grew up in a small country town, as as you mentioned, and left school, finished year twelve, left um, left that small country town, headed to Melbourne to go to university in finished school in two thousand. So university started in two thousand and one, and I got a job at a making coffees at a mortgage broking company, just part-time while I was doing university. And I just fell in love with work straight away, basically. Um, Having your own money. um, I didn't, I never really enjoyed university. Um, I I was a bit of a wild child um, from, I guess, 14 to sort of 16. So by the time I got to uni, um, I was kind of over, you know, going out and um, drinking all the time and stuff. So I never really enjoyed uni that much. Um, And I'd always found that I had older friends and things. So when I started that part-time job, um, I just fell in, fell in love with it. And 
I think I continued on with uni for about a year and a half um, and progressed with where I was working. I went from like making coffees to being like an admin assistant. And then someone within the business um, went on holidays quite abruptly and I had to kind of step up and do a lot of their um, job while they were away. So it was pretty quickly that I just didn't want to go to uni anymore. So I deferred uni and ended up going and taking a full-time job as an admin person at this mortgage broking company. Um, So I think we're talking around 2002 now. Um, Then my best friend actually from school um, who I grew up with, a, a guy called Nick, got him a job there as well. So we both basically were working there. Um, He, of course, continued on with uni, did the smart thing. I didn't. Um, But we worked our way out really quickly in that business and we were actually mortgage brokers, I think, by the time we were 20. Um, So we were working in admin a couple of years there and then got our mortgage broking qualifications and were actually out seeing clients by the time we were 20. Um, and then for the cup, a couple of years, we were, we were basically writing the most amount of volume of all the brokers in that business. Um, we were young and we were go-getters and we lived together and we fed off each other and yeah, we just fell in love with that corporate sort of lifestyle and earning good money and having nice things. And, um, we bought our first property when we were, I think 19 uh, or 20 in Melbourne. So we bought that jointly. Um, And then after a few years of doing that, uh, I remember it was Nick, my business partner. He, in our relationship, in our business relationship, Nick is the bean counter, um, the (laughs) the, the realist, the one that makes things work with money. and, And I'm, I guess, more of the dreamer, like the marketer, the more salesy type person of the relationship. Um, so he kind of just came to me one day and said, we can do this on our own. Like we, we can go, we can open our own company and do this on our own. And I was like, okay, like if he's saying that, that's the level of trust we had. We'd known each other for sort of 25 years at that point. And I just sort of said, okay, if you say we can do it, then we can do it. And it all happened really quickly in, I think it was 2000, end of 2006, um, pretty much within a couple of months, we were like subletting, a space, um, just him, myself, Nick, and we had an admin person come with us. Um, So we were basically up and running like a few months after we had that conversation. Uh, And then the GFC hit, I think it was in 2007. Um, So that was a really tough time. We basically, when we started the business, we started it from scratch. We didn't borrow any money from the banks. Uh, We didn't take any money from our families or anything like that. We basically lived off credit um, for the first, him and I, we had massive credit card debt for the first probably two years um, because we, at the time, we also had uh, quite a few, we had three or four investment properties at that time and we didn't want to sell them because um, we didn't want to sell them and lose all that hard work and all that that wealth and put all that money into the business. We wanted to keep those properties. so, yeah, the 2006, early 2007 is when we started the business, just the three of us. Um, and we just worked really, really, really hard. Like when I think back to those early days in the business, the things that we did, you know, knocked on doors, dealt with rejection, um, working, you know, 60 hour weeks every single week, um, 
you know, as any business owner knows, like how hard those those early days are. And I think we sort of came over the hump maybe three or four years into business. Like, you know, we actually started to earn money and we could pay ourselves and we weren't stressing about money every five minutes. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of the, the, the business background. It's a, it's a mortgage broking company. We also added a financial planning arm to that business maybe five or six years after we started it. And we also started a uh, buyer's agency um, property arm of the business at one point, but we ended up selling that a few years later. So that business now uh, employs between 25 and 30 people um, and is one of the most successful mortgage broking uh, companies in Victoria or even in Australia, like privately owned small companies. Um, so that's, yeah, a little bit about my business background. That's what consumed me for probably 12, 12 years. And you're still um, a major shareholder and director of that business. So you're still sort of involved, not necessarily in necessarily the day-to-day, but you're still involved overall. Yeah, basically when I decided that I wanted to have a go at racing uh, professionally with triathlon, which we'll get into that story a little bit later, no doubt. Um, But when I made that decision two or three years ago, myself and my business partner agreed that I could take four years out of the business. um, And after that four years, I would either have to sell down the remaining shares in my business and get out completely, um, or I would have to step away from triathlon and come back to work 100% and retain whatever shares I had left. So that was our agreement when I decided to turn professional. And that's how I fund um, my my life now. Basically, I I sell down uh, shares in that business every six months to other employees within the business. um, And that's how I live. Yeah, fascinating. So what I'm so interested about is how you guys grew that business and sort of the factors to your growth. Because what's actually quite interesting about that is even though we all say our age isn't a factor and, you know, clearly it wasn't a barrier, there's still, I would imagine, be quite a few obstacles at the time getting, you know, mortgage advice from a 20-year-old. You know, you can just imagine... um, people sort of and their reaction to that and you having to sort of really establish your credibility and prove yourself, you know, being such young business owners and particularly in that area of expertise. So what do you feel was sort of some of the the factors in your growth and sort of that led to the success of the business? I think just touching on that, you know, being young and talking to people about mortgages at such a young age, um, I think there's two reasons that we were able to overcome that. Um, One of those reasons is that we just, we just knew our stuff, basically. Um, When, when we were administration assistants, so basically you're a PA personal assistant to a mortgage broker back then. So you're basically packaging up all the paperwork. You're talking to the banks all day. You know all the bank's products like inside out and back the front. So in fact, when you're uh, you know in that role where you're a sort of PA or an admin assistant and a good one uh, to a mortgage broker, you probably actually have more knowledge about all the products and things than the actual broker does. Um, so for us going and sit a cl- in sitting in front of clients, of course, it was very nerve wracking in those early days because you, 
felt in your, the back of your mind that people wouldn't trust you and things like that. But as soon as we were able to start talking and start talking banks and products and things, it was very clear that we knew exactly what we were talking about. Um, and I think the second second reason um, was because we had property ourselves. So most 24-year-olds or even when we started broking at 2021 20, don't have a property, don't even know what a mortgage is. They're still paying off their credit cards from their overseas trips and things like that. So because we had taken that leap and bought a property so young um, and had multiple properties by the time we were 24, we actually truly did understand. Yeah, so you were able to give that sort of not only the credibility by the fact you knew it inside out, but also that level of personal experience having gone through the process multiple times by that point. Exactly right. Yeah. And sort of going back to, sorry, I double stacked that question, going back to the factors of growth, what I'm really curious about is, is the business has gone on, like you said, to be super successful, not only within Victoria, but also considered on Australian level and, you know, has gone on to win lots of awards. What, what do you think some of the factors were to that growth that you, that you achieved? It sounds really simple, but really, really hard work. I think some people's definition of hard work and other people's definition of hard work are really, really different things. Um, There's no shortcuts in business. Like you have to be prepared to work really, really long hours in the early days, which we did. You have to be prepared to earn no money. Um, The amount of, back when I was, before I started triathlon, um, I was mentoring a few small Uh, I guess you would say small business owners or sole traders um, and talking about expanding their business and things like that. And it's quite, I found it quite shocking the amount of people that expect to go into business and still be able to draw the same wage that they're earning from their PAYG job straight away. Mm -hmm. And if you kind of tell them, well, that's not reality, that's not going to happen they were, they, they'd either like get cranky because they didn't believe you because they think that you're doing something wrong or just trying to be negative or it scared them off. They'd be like, oh, I don't want to do this then. So I think that, um, A, it's it's just a lot harder and the work involved is is a lot harder than, than people give it credit for and we certainly worked really, really hard. Um, I think you've got to be really, really patient Um you know, like getting through those first, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of businesses, they give up and they close the doors when it gets hard in those first few years. It looks like you're not going to get over that hump um, and you're not going to grow and you're not ever going to earn money. But the reality is that day does come. If you keep putting in the hours and you keep putting in the effort, it will happen eventually. It's just a matter of being patient. Um, I think you've got to invest in good people. Um, we were always really big on staff, like investing in our staff. Um, and you've just got to have a really good work ethic, good work ethic, be passionate about what you do. And I think another key thing that I always try and say is you have to identify what where your weaknesses are as a person and, and as a business owner and make sure that you've got people within your business um, that can do the things that you can't. I think what stops a lot of people doing that is their ego. They don't like to say, I'm not good at that or I'm not good at managing the accounts. Like a lot of entrepreneurs or wannabe entrepreneurs or business owners think that they need to be amazing at everything. But the reality is that you don't. You've just got to have good people around you. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think there's also quite, uh, going back to your previous point, I think there's the whole term even entrepreneur it's become a bit of a sort of um 
it's become a bit of an, a status thing over the past few years and not necessarily a reflection of reality. So it's sort of the Instagram posts and, you know, a laptop from the beach and that sort of yes. expression from the outside world versus the reality when, you know, you're still sitting there working away at midnight and, you know, on a Saturday and a Sunday and everything in between. So the Instagram version versus the reality version are very different. Yep. Totally agree. I want to tap into, um, so you mentioned there about the GFC and going through the GFC. And I actually want to tap on that because, you know, at the moment, um, going through the coronavirus, um, whilst it's not the same as the GFC, and, you know, I was working in London through the GFC, um, so I can appreciate, you know, those differences. But by the same token, it's dealing with, you know, very, very difficult market conditions and absolute challenges to your business. And at the moment, I'd say pretty much, 98% of business owners that I'm speaking to, you know, unless you're selling loo roll hand sanitizer or a few other products or services are having to deal with the fallout of that. How did yourself and Nick navigate the GFC? Um, I think with any uh, major economic events or things that affect your business, you have, well, there's quite a few parts to this. A, you always need to be prepared for downtimes, um, and I know I understand that that's very difficult in the early days in business. It's it's easy for me to say that now. Oh yeah, Nick, you know within our business now, Nick makes sure that there's a buffer there for when things go wrong, and there's enough money there to pay wages for three or four months. It's yeah, it's all great that I can sit here and preach that to everybody, but I know that you know early days in business, it's almost impossible. Um, but if you do have an established business, it's all it's all about being prepared um, when times are good. Um, always pretend that a shitty time is going to happen, <laughs> and being mm. prepared for that. Um, positivity, uh, I think it's uh, really important, and I know that's so cliche to say that you have to remain positive, but. Almost every economic, major economic event or downturn that we've had, it always comes good. Um, it You always come out the other side. Um, so I think going into it with a problem-solving mindset and a positive mindset is really, really important. Um, in business, I think another key thing is adaptability. Like straight away when this corona stuff you know, all, all came out and you could see where it was going to head. Um, I think it's really important for business owners to not now so much, but a few, you know, a few weeks ago to be thinking about the opportunity in this situation and ha- how they can make changes within their business and adapt slightly during these times. Um, and cost cutting, you know, it's it's very harsh, but the first thing you have to do as a business when things like this start to happen is go straight to your expenses um, and get harsh with it. You know, it's, it's all, and this is going to sound really harsh, but um, it's nice to sit there and say, oh, well, we want to keep everyone happy and we want to keep everyone on and we don't want to cl- shut, stop doing that because that will make people unhappy. But the reality is like long-term, you're going to make people happy by still employing them and still having a business to run. So it's important to have, to make those really tough decisions, especially when it comes to expenses and expenditure um, really early on in the piece, because it's very hard to come back from if you don't do that early on. And then in two months time, the phones aren't ringing and the sales aren't coming in the door. It's almost too late then. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think it's been really interesting through coronavirus to look at the businesses that have already pivoted. They've either minimized the downside and, like you said, taken actions and measures and cost cutting and so on to sort of minimize the damage. Mm -hmm. Um, But they've also started adapting, like you talked to, to also go, hang on, you know, where's, um, I sound like my mother when I say it, but where's the silver (laughs) lining and where's the opportunity in this that we can actually adapt and pivot to sort of, you know, position ourselves to, to, seek that new opportunity yeah and to capitalize on it like the the reality is like in a difficult time businesses will close door there will be people that can't cope with it mentally or they don't have the resources or they don't have the money or they their business already wasn't running well um, and this is just going to be the death of it that's reality Um, so if you can um, you know adapt and like you said pivot a little bit cut expenses and do those little things and survive it then you're probably going to come out the other end quite successful because maybe 10 or 20 percent of the businesses in your sector haven't made it through yeah and it brings what i think is interesting as well is the innovation that it brings you know you look at the gfc and that's out of that came airbnb uber whatsapp um slack you know several other businesses i think it's actually been interesting already we've seen people through coronavirus starting to innovate and i think that's the you know there's a lot of bad things, but if we draw upon the good things, I think that's the cool thing that's starting to happen is some of the innovation that's happened in the space of a couple of weeks is in some industries and sectors more than has happened in years. Yeah, and one of the biggest things in life, what, what happens, we get complacent and it happens in business too. You know, when everything's running well, um, you don't look at your expenses. You don't, you don't really look at your staff. Are they mm. performing? You don't look at all those things because times are good. So sometimes it takes events like this to stop you being complacent and it forces you to look at all those things, which I think is a great thing. Yeah, I agree. I was actually doing my expenses the other day for the end of the quarter and I'll be totally honest, I was looking at mine was parking. So it wasn't like I was buying, you know, really cool, luxurious things, but I was adding up, you know, I live in Sydney, you add up Sydney parking, it's like 50 bucks, 50 bucks, 50 bucks, 50 bucks. And I'm like, suddenly over a thousand dollars and you keep going with it and you're like, wow, you know, that's just parking before you've got on to talking about anything else. So it it made me stop even and reflect and go, wow, there's a lot of places I can be a little bit more sensible here um, and yeah, make a better decision. Totally. So I want to move to, because I've got so many things I want to get get to with you. I'm sort of going to have to kidnap you multiple times. I've already, <laughs> I've already admitted to you that I'm just going to stalk you forever now. <laughs> um, Renee's going to be running scared. Um, I want to talk about your light bulb moment, because this to me is just absolutely fascinating. And I'm just so excited to hear about it. So I don't even want to say any more than that, because I want to hear it in your words. Can you talk to us about the light bulb moment, how that came about, and you know, how, how it unfolded from there for you. Yeah. I, um, gosh, it really feels like I'm talking about another person now. Um, so to give the people listening, I think when I, when, when I, my story is told or I say to people I was overweight, they look at me now and they don't quite grasp the state of health that I was in. So to give the listeners an idea of what state I was in, I, went on a um I was working like crazy hours and I remember just this one experience this is a few years before my light bulb moment my business I came into work and my business partner said to me you're not coming to work next week I don't care where you go I don't care what you do but you're not coming to work because at that point I was working every day basically I was working 10 hour days including weekends I was like eating at the office and stuff 
So it was an enforced break by him. He I don't, he saw that, you know, I was just completely consumed by work and unhealthy and all those sorts of things. So it was never about my weight or anything like that. It was about the all-consuming work side of my life. So I went to a business retreat or a health retreat for business people. And I think I was about 28 at the time. Um, and they did like a health screening when you got there and – I, my blood pressure was 156 over 101. Um, I was 101 kilos at that point. Uh, I was smoking a packet of cigarettes a day. My typical breakfast um, would be, you know, I'd get up at like six o'clock. I was in the car by 7am heading to work, cigarette on the way to work in the car, Red Bull. That would be my like breakfast um, back in those days. So that's kind of the state of health I was in. My BMI was almost 40%. Um, so almost 40% body fat. Um, so that, that's kind of how unhealthy I was. And it was a couple of years after that, actually, I, I went to that health retreat, nothing changed. I did that for a week. My life didn't change. And then, but interestingly, I never thought, like at that time, I didn't wake up every morning and go, geez, I'm overweight, geez, I'm fat mm. or anything like that. I never actually, I knew that I was bigger, obviously, and there'd be times like I'd look at myself in the mirror and didn't like the way I looked and stuff. But yeah, I wasn't trying to diet or lose weight or anything like that because I didn't think I was that big. <laughs> um, and then in 2013, uh, I had friends who lived I was living in Melbourne at the time and friends lived at the Sunshine Coast and they, I was going up to visit them and I went up for the weekend and on the Friday they said, oh, Friday, Saturday, they said, oh, we've got a friend doing the Noosa Triathlon tomorrow and we said we would go watch them. Um, are you okay with that? Like if we go, you want to come with the kids and we'll just stop there like for a couple of hours and then go. And I said, yeah, no problem. Because e- even though I was like very overweight or obese and smoking and everything, I'd grown up a sporty kid and I'd always liked watching sport on TV. So anyway, we went to this Noosa triathlon and they were inside talking to someone. I was outside by myself watching the uh all the like cyclists coming in they come in and they rack their bikes and they go out and run on the course and I was just standing there by myself and I I just remember thinking oh my goodness like everybody looks like they're just so happy there was so many spectators like the Noosa triathlon is the biggest triathlon in the southern hemisphere so there's like thousands of participants and another thousand people watching it and I, yeah, I just remember thinking, gosh, there's like old people and young people doing this and big people and small people, like all different sizes. But the common theme was everyone just looked like they were having a ball. And I just remember thinking, God, maybe like I swam a bit, you know, like as a kid and everyone can run and surely it's not that hard to ride a bike. Like maybe in 12 months I could do this, come back here and do this triathlon. That was literally what I thought. Um, out of nowhere really and I didn't tell anyone of course because I think anyone that yeah knew me back then if I stated that that's what I was thinking they would have thought I was a crazy person Um, (laughs) so I didn't tell anyone but I went home uh, from the sunny coast and I registered for that race and didn't tell anyone so 12 it was the race was 12 you know in the 12 months after in 2014 so that was kind of the beginning well that was that light bulb moment 
and it was so it was never about oh wow I want to do this because I want to lose 40 kilos or anything like that it was just wow this looks like heaps of fun and maybe I could tick that off as a goal in 12 months time so I didn't do anything about it that was early November 2013 and I didn't do anything about it when I got home and then of course it's Christmas and you've got all the corporate Christmas parties and all that kind of stuff which I did and continued on and then January my birthday is actually on New Year's Day the first of January and I remember it was the second of January I was just at home I lived in Albert Park in Melbourne and I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to go to the bike shop and buy a bike today. So I went to a bike shop and I bought a $600 road bike with just with normal flat pedals. And that was the beginning. Do you think the fact that I'm, so I'm really curious about this. Do you think the fact that you registered for the race, so you put yourself on the hook and you got, you know, you were accountable. Do you think that also was part of what, you know, kickstarted it in the sense of going, well, I've registered and, you know, almost that determination for yourself of, well, I'm not going to drop out. I refuse. 110%. Like you have to, it's all well and good to set a goal, but unless you've got some sort of accountability, then nine times out of 10, you won't reach the goal. So yeah, if I hadn't have registered for that race, I've never thought about it before, but if I didn't, I wonder whether I would have even ever taken that first step to buy the bike or maybe it would have taken another six months or another eight months or something like that. But yeah, definitely because I had put pen to paper as such. um, I think that was the catalyst. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I find I'm a little bit like that. If I haven't registered for something and it doesn't matter whether it's business or personal, if you actually have pressed a button, I'm so stubborn that I'm going to refuse to not do whatever it is so yep. I want yeah I'm curious about that so then talk to us about um from there obviously it now sort of takes on a life of its own and and you sort of start doing more and more triathlons and getting into it and gets to a point where you obviously as you sort of referred to a little bit earlier get to a point where you're stepping out of the day-to-day for business and Nick's given you the four years that's a and, and to go you know minor point sounds very so, simple when you say it like that I, know, I, just thought about that. I was like hang on I need to reword this <laughs> It was so easy. You just, you know, lost the weight and that was it. So <laughs> I want to sort of dig into some of this decision factor in terms of going, you were that, you know, you were that determined, you got that far with it, that you were prepared to actually leave um, the day-to-day of this business that you've built, this highly successful business that you've built, and actually to turn professional. It's not just a hobby. It's not just a thing that you're doing on the weekends. It's actually a professional career that that's enormous so can you talk to us about that point because that's also two I imagine two very conflicting worlds around pursuing a career in sport which is a beast from someone like you said you know within a couple of years to to go from smoking Red Bull overweight to professional career um yeah I'm just really curious about that point look almost the transition point yep um well, the first couple of years in triathlon, I, I did progress really quickly. Like I, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm a talented sports person, but I obviously had a natural ability, some sort of 
natural ability um, for triathlon because if I didn't, I, I wouldn't have progressed as quickly as I did. So I competed as, so I did that first triathlon in March, 2014. By the end of that year, I'd lost 43 kilos. I'd gone back and done that race in Noosa. Like I said, I was going to, um, I finished in, I set a goal to finish in the top 50% of my age group at that Noosa triathlon. And I think there was 250 in the race and I finished and I came 25th. Um, so from literally the year prior, standing on the sideline, smoking 104 kilos, never having even run more than five kilos. A year later, I was coming 25th out of 250 girls in my age group in an Olympic distance triathlon. And then the next year, I like, the next year I did a half Ironman. I won't go into too much about the the racing side of it and the different distance triathlons, but basically I did a half Ironman and then by the end of the year I did an Ironman. I won my first Ironman and then I competed in the world championships for amateurs. So all of that happened within 18 months of doing my first triathlon. I'd kind of almost reached the pinnacle of amateur racing and that was competing at the world championships for Ironman. So my progression was quite quick and that didn't happen because I was just so super talented. I trained so, so hard um, and I was, became, I have a very addictive personality. So I became very obsessed with triathlon and I think I became obsessed with it because I loved it. Um, That obviously helped. So those first few years in triathlons, I progressed quite quickly to winning or finishing on the podium pretty much every single race I was doing in my age group. Um, and with triathlon, you can, the two directions you can go is you can continue to race as an amateur or you can apply um, to become a professional. Um, when you become a professional, you can, you have the ability to earn prize money. You have the ability to partner with sponsors who might pay you um, and most professionals will do it as their full-time job because you simply almost can't even compete if you don't train full-time. You really need to be training full-time um, in order to be good enough to earn money, to earn some sort of living. So I came to this crossroads in 2017. I was like winning most of my races. I'd actually been to the world championships twice as an age group athlete. And I did uh, a race and I remember I had another light bulb moment. The professional woman, so with triathlon, the amateurs race on the same day as the professionals on the same course. And the professional woman who won the race that day that I was doing, the Ironman race I was doing, at the awards ceremony the next the following day after the race she got up and did her speech and she said um I'd never really considered racing professional because at the time I was 33 or something and like who the hell thinks that they can even consider having a career in sport at like starting at the age of 33 I don't think that's a sensible consideration for most people so I hadn't even really given it thought like a few people at that point had mentioned to me offhand oh you should race pro or you're really good at this or you should try racing pro and I'd never really given it any thought um but yeah this particular race at the awards ceremony the next day the female professional winner got up and she said something along the lines of 
you know, I'm, if someone had told me 10 years ago that I'd be standing up here as a professional triathlete winning an Ironman title um, at the age of 38, I would have said they were crazy. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, she's 38. Like it dawned on me that, you know, maybe this is possible. Like I'm 33 and I've only been in the sport for two or three years and look what I've already achieved. Like, wow, maybe, maybe I could have a go at doing it professionally. So when that happened, I went back home to Melbourne and I just could not get it out of my head then. That was the the moment for me. And I, it was a few days after the race. I had like a few days off work after the race and I was back in Melbourne and I just remember getting in the shower one morning to go to walk back to work. And I just remember this overwhelming sense of like sadness that I had to go to work. And it wasn't because I hated work because I, I loved my work and I loved my business, but I just found this new passion that absolutely lit my eyes up. And I knew at that point that that's what I wanted to do every day. So I asked myself every day when I got in the shower, can you imagine just training? That's all you do. You train, you come home, you train again, you come home. Can you, can, you know, talking to myself, can you imagine doing this like every day for the next say five, six years? And after a few days of really thinking that through, I said to myself, yes, like this, this is what I want to do now. Um, so I had a coffee with my, or oh, I had breakfast, asked my business partner to have breakfast with me and poor guy, he like, would not have been expecting it. <laughs> I just said to him, I want to have a go at doing this professionally. Like, yeah, I feel like I'll regret, regret it if I don't. Um, and I kind of didn't have a solution in terms of the business. Um, I just sort of said to him, what, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> this is what I want to do. And he was amazing. Like, I'm so lucky. He, we kind of had a couple of meetings and a couple of catch-ups and we talked it through and we came up with, okay, for the, the rest of that year, I would work, uh, I would pull back to three days a week. So I would gradually pull back my hours. So I'd gradually I'd pull back to three days a week for the remaining of 2017, I think it was, um, with a goal t- as of 1st of January 2018, um, stepping out of the business. And that's when we came up with the, okay, let's put, um, which is completely fair. I don't expect him to be sitting around in the business for the next six years waiting to see whether I come back or not. Um, so we made that agreement that for as of the 1st of January 2018, um, yeah, we were, he would give me, we agreed on four years out of the business, um, pursue it, go, you know, give it a crack as much as I can and at the end of the four years make that decision. It feels like every time I imagine it, I just picture this big fork in the road, like what's coming at me in 2022, <laughs> the end of 2022. I'm sure I won't be able to sleep for three months before that date is that date's approaching. Um, yeah, I need to decide whether to go back to work full time or sell down the remaining shares in the business and do my own do my own thing, either stay in triathlon or do something else. So yeah, that's kind of the progression, how it happened. Um, and today my career is a professional athlete. It's crazy. I love it. It's so inspiring because I, I was saying to you before we started recording, um, not that it's anywhere near the same, but this is my 
baby version of it is that you know after having a kid I found it really hard to get back into fitness and you kind of were like oh I'm 35 you know no nah, not what it used to be and all the rest of it and last night after reading up more of your bio and more things I was like oh hell no I've got no <laughs> excuse whatsoever you know you started this uh, turning professional at 33 there is like literally no excuse on the planet and that's what I love about your story it's just so inspiring that you don't have to be the kid that was you know like you said 16 and then just constantly competing in your 20s competing in into your 30s like you've started from an athlete perspective you've started it late in the game yeah, yeah very late and like how many it's just something that you don't consider yeah I the the women that you majority of the women that I'm competing against were like world class athletes that I'm on the start line with. They have been doing triathlon for twenty twenty five years. Um, you would just never. Most people would never think that they can have a career in sport um, if they're not doing it in their early twenties. So yeah, that's something I'm super passionate about. Not just sport. Um, showing people that it's it's never too late you know it's never too late to completely change the course of your life if you really want to so how do you i want to dig into mindset on that i'm really curious because i think that from sort of what i understand there's so much of this is a mindset game whether we're talking about the business that you built like and having the courage to do that at 24 and like you said having the right mindset through the gfc and all those examples and then same into sport of being like 33 um, starting to go professional, having the courage to also, you know, uh, make the decisions you did with the business. And so much of that, I assume, um, and would love to sort of hear about whether you think it was having a strong mindset that carried you through that and how you've built your mindset to that point. Yeah, it, it definitely. Look, I'm not going to lie. I think that we all have certain um, skills and personality traits. And I think you know, being an athlete or a business owner, you can't teach all of that. You do have to possess certain traits um, to be successful in those spaces, I think. Um, like I'm not sure that you can you can practice mental toughness and resilience, but I don't think it's something that you can teach someone how to be mentally tough or resilient. Um, so I think, for example, so resilience is something I really pride myself on and mental toughness. But I think like people might say to me, well, how do you get mentally tougher or how do you get resilient? The only way that you can get more resilient and mentally tough is failing. Um, and the only way you can fail really is trying new things or stepping outside your comfort zone. So for me, it's not about like reading a book and learning how to be mentally resilient because you don't actually learn it unless you practice it or doing it. You can read about it all you like, <laughs> but no, it, no book is going to tell you like the emotions that you're going to feel and things like that when you fail or step outside your comfort zone and feel fear and things like that. So I think, um, yeah, resilience is a a key part of it, re resilience and mental toughness to, to, to make those, to back yourself and make those decisions and know that you might fail, but know that you have the resources and the capacity to get over those failures. Um, I think that's one theme that comes through. Uh, I think work ethic is really important, whether it's business 
or sport, that's you have to have a good work ethic. Um, they're probably two, two of the main ones. And how do you navigate that work ethic when you're having a morning where, you know, it's chucking it down with rain outside, you know, maybe you didn't have a great night's sleep, you just can't be asked. You know, how do you um, overcome any sort of procrastination or any, um, I don't know, overwhelm or barriers to sort of executing on, on your goal? I think, yeah, motivation is one of those funny things. I, I think um, people assume, especially with professional athletes, that we're just motivated all the time and it's just simply not true. Like I have days where I wake up and I don't want to go to work. My work is getting up and training a few times a day and I have days just like anybody else, like just like I used to have in the corporate world, days where I wake up and I just can't be stuffed training. Um I think a key thing with motivation and the ups and downs is not fighting it. Like it's inevitable. Everybody is going to feel unmotivated at times. Um, Don't fight it. It will pass. But I think what's important is keeping structure and keeping routine. All these themes come back and intertwine with each other. Motivation will go up and down. But if you have structure and you have a routine in your life it's just about getting up and getting the things ticked off that are in your calendar whether you're feeling great or not but if you just have the discipline to get up and do those things that's all you've got to do for the day and then you, you might feel the same the next day and you might that might go on for a week but if you just get up and do the things in your calendar and and have that routine and that structure, I almost guarantee ninety times out ninety nine times out of a hundred, the motivation part will will come back. It's just a matter of time. So it's having goals to work towards, but also having structure and routine, which just take over when you don't have that jump out of bed dancing around feeling. If you just have that structure and routine and get it done, the motivation part will come back eventually that's so interesting because the more I read about and it's the reading part about you know people who have played a really really high performance game so much of it they say is actually coming back to almost putting yourself on autopilot because yep. actually you're halfway through that run before you've even thought about the fact shit I've got to go for a run yeah I, or, or that meeting I am like structure and routine I cannot express how critical I think this is um to the point where now, like, and remember, I'm someone that struggled with being overweight. I, I still suffer with disordered eating issues. Like, I still don't have that sorted <laughs> um, by any means. So, structure and routine, uh, I just, I can't hammer it home enough. Like, uh, it is still a problem for me. Like, when I, if I try and use an example, when I get injured or uh, last year I had quite a bad uh, bike accident and at the moment when I'm in training, I have a training program that my coach puts my training to into each day. Uh, when I was in the corporate career, I had Outlook and you have your calendar and you have all your days segmented out. You've got this meeting, that meeting, that hours for business planning, everything, structure and routine. For me personally, the minute I don't have structure and routine I completely fall off the bandwagon as high achieving as I am as successful as I've been whatever I know that sounds crazy but the minute I don't have a training program to wake up to in my diary I just 
completely fall I lack that motivation I feel like there's nothing to get up for for the day um so structure and routine is so important to the to the point where I even say non-athletes to people working just you know regular people about their day or if someone says to me oh you know I want to lose weight and how should I go about it and we start a conversation around that I'll say to them, well, what are you going to do like from an exercise perspective? And they'll say, oh, like I'll go for a walk every morning or whatever. I'll say, well, is it in your diary? And they'll say, no, because that's just what I, I'll just do it, you know, when I get up. And I'm like, you, you might not some days. It, like put it in the diary and they're like, oh, but that's stupid. You know, it's just a walk or whatever. But it's, you'll be amazed at the difference that that can make if you open up your calendar when you wake up in the morning you have walk blocked out from 7 to 8.30 a.m., on those days that you are lacking motivation, like you just said, it's just a matter of treating that walk like it's a meeting or something that needs to be ticked off for the day. You've just got to get up. You've just got to get it done. Um, and that's why I think structure and routine is just absolutely critical to success in life. So anyone now who's like me going like really quickly taking notes, that's sort of your first step to get started is put it in your calendar, treat it like it's a meeting. You wouldn't cancel on the client at the last second. Yep. Um, and therefore, you get, even when you're feeling like, nah, I don't want to do it, it's in your calendar, you've got to do it. You just got to tick it off. Yeah, it's another part of the day that you got to tick it off. And how like that saying that goes around, I can't remember what it is, like, we all sit here and say, I don't want to go for a run, but how many people or walk or whatever it is, how many people actually get back from the walk or get back from the run and say, oh, I wish I didn't do that. Like nobody does that. So it's just about the discipline and the structure and the routine and getting yourself out the door. And I think I'm pretty tough on myself and other people. I think there's a lot. I think we naturally can be can make excuses too easily for ourselves uh, and we're not hard enough on ourselves um, when we need to be. I think there's too much in society now of, oh, but, you know, it's okay to like give yourself, you know, it's okay to be lazy or it's okay to give yourself a break for a couple of days or, um, you know, sunshine and rainbows, like love yourself enough to like be, not be hard on yourself. Like I actually think the opposite to that. I think love yourself enough to be hard on yourself when necessary. Like it's just a walk. It's just a run. It's nothing like get it done and don't give yourself the easy way out unless it's absolutely critical. Of course, when there's something really serious going on in life. I love that. I actually just wrote that down. That's a, that's an epic quote that I'm going to have to put against your name. Love yourself enough to be hard on yourself about those sort of important things. So look, I've got to ask you before, um, before I let you literally run, um, I've got to ask around the, the C word, which is the coronavirus. And this obviously has had a massive impact to you in terms of, you know, you can't, you're not able to do the races that were in your diary and scheduled. And I assume it's sort of changed some of how you're navigating your training. Um, I'm really curious to ask you this question purely because, you know, hearing so much about your journey and your mindset, how are you navigating this time and this sort of adapting to the change? Oh, I hate saying this, um, but I, it hasn't really affected me yet um, in terms of my 
attitude and my outlook um, and my motivation, it really hasn't changed. So uh, the little things that have changed, yes, we can't swim. So pools are closed at the moment. Um, and for me, I swim, bike and run for my job. So for me to be not swimming, you know, five days a week is pretty um, critical and pretty pretty hard. Um, so that's cut down drastically because we can only do a little bit of open water swimming at the moment. Other than that, um, my life really hasn't changed too much. Um, being a professional athlete, life's pretty solitary anyway. Um, so a lot of our training's done alone. And as I said, our day consists of wake up, train, eat breakfast, train, eat lunch, have a nap, train, eat dinner, go to bed. <laughs> um, so my day-to-day hasn't changed too much a lot of, I'm hearing a lot of athletes saying that they're really unmotivated because there's no race um, on mm. the horizon. Um, I've actually been quite surprised that it that the fact that there's no racing hasn't really affected me emotionally I, or mentally. I haven't had a lack of motivation. Um, goals are obviously my medium-term goals are to qualify for the world championships as a professional and I know that even if corona was here or not here that was probably going to be a one or two year goal anyway so the fact that there's no races in the next four or five months is not really affecting that goal if that makes sense because it was a longer term goal anyway Um, but I also think another thing that I really harp on about which I think is really important in this in this time is perspective like Mm. you have to maintain perspective all the time every bad time or hard time in my life um I again I really pride myself on maintaining perspective like life could be so much worse right um you know we could have cancer and be on our deathbed and things like that so I really think this is just a little blip on the radar and I think it's important that when you have those little moments where you feel dejected or you're not feeling motivation or you're feeling like it's pointless, it's really important um, to find perspective all the time. I'm constantly saying to myself whenever I have even a one-second moment in life where I'm feeling down or whatever perspective, even when I had my crash in August last year, um, it was a really bad crash and I broke bones and had skin off everywhere and had a really bad concussion and I couldn't train for like two two months of recovery. I couldn't do anything. But I kept thinking of this is, a, I guess, a tool. Think of one person that you know or one story in your life that you can refer back to in those times. And for me, that's a friend of mine. She was like maybe 26, two or three years ago, professional triathlete killing it at life, stunning young woman. She had a bike crash and now she's paralyzed from the waist down. So whenever life gets tough or I think I'm hard done by or something, I always think of her and it pretty much everything pales in comparison to that. So that's just another little tool I think um, that's important and can help during times like this. I literally think that is the most inspiring thing ever in terms of, you know, how you 
you know, the tools that you use, your mindset. And like you said, putting it into perspective, this won't last forever. You know, hopefully for most of us, you know, unless we're in a really, really high risk camp, you know, we will absolutely come through this. Um, and it's just such a great way to approach life. And I personally have been so inspired by your story and how you are just giving it everything. I feel like there's about 10,000 more questions I want to ask you. So I feel like I'm going to have to do a part two <laughs> of, this, of this podcast. But I have absolutely loved chatting to you. I think right now at this point in time, we all needed to hear a bit of positivity, a bit of um a bit of your story to fuel fuel the fire in our belly. So thank you so much. If people want to connect with you, where where do you hang out other than uh, running in the pool? Where are people best to go check you out? Ah, uh, definitely Instagram. I um I go through ebbs and flows on Instagram. Times when I'm very very active, and then times when I'm less active. But I really do enjoy actually talking to people. Um, so if you head to my Instagram profile, Renee Kylie underscore, um, I'm constantly put, popping up Instagram stories, doing questions and answers there. And I encourage people to comment and contact me through Instagram. I'm happy to share um, any of my experiences or knowledge that might help people. Amazing. And I'll put uh, Renee's link to her Instagram in the show notes. And you guys can let me know questions you've got for her as well, because we're going to have to uh, twist her arm to come back for part two. Thank you so much for joining us, Renee. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to join our free membership with COVID-19 resources, please go to our website, theexecutionzone.com. You'll find there interviews with PR, legal, HR, sales, um, communication, stress management, and many other experts that you can access all for free. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please subscribe, leave a review and share. We would really, really appreciate that.